Hello, friends. Good morning. We have, through the first uh, part of this year, shared this series of sermons we're calling a House of Prayer. We've spent most of our time centering ourselves again in the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples to pray when they came to him, and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We've received these words as God's gift to us. Um, isn't it interesting that it's a prayer that we pray, words that we speak back to God that are words that God has given us, right? These words that we take up, we embrace um, because they form us. They form how we think, how we see God, how we see the world, how we see each other. We are being formed as we pray uh, this prayer, these words together. And so I'm going to invite us again as we center ourselves this morning to pray this prayer together. You'll see the words of the prayer on the screen, and we'll all speak them together. They are words that God has given the church that we receive and are blessed by. So, if we could, words of the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray together as our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, so we say together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen. We've uh, spent time unpacking the richness, the depth, the breadth of this prayer and as we've moved through it, each phrase seeking to um, understand and to embrace each phrase of the prayer, um, we've come to this point toward the end where we're beginning to see the ways in which this prayer is really connected to the full life of God in Jesus Christ. And so you'll remember that um, we spent some time not long ago, a few weeks ago, seeing the connections between the prayer that Jesus gives us to pray, these words, this prayer that we've just prayed, and Jesus' time in the wilderness, that moment as Jesus begins his public ministry where he's led by the Spirit for 40 days into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, the connections between what Jesus is wrestling with in that moment and the prayer that, that uh, he gives us to pray. We saw last week that not only is that prayer, this prayer, the Lord's prayer that we pray, connected to that moment at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it's also connected to this place where Jesus, Jesus stands in the temple courts, and he sees what's happening there, and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all, for all people, for all nations. No one is cut off. No one is cut off from the love of God, from the work of God, from the redemption of God in the world. It's a house of prayer for all nations, and we centered ourselves there. I want to suggest this morning that as we hold this prayer that Jesus has given us, and we allow it to be the lens through which we see the story of Jesus, that it lead us to this place where we see the intersection of the life of prayer and Jesus' own journey to the cross, which is fortunate for us because we find ourselves in this season where we are preparing our hearts, our minds to take this journey in the way of the cross. 
In some traditions, historically, this season has been called the season of Lent. Heard of Lent? Anybody heard of Lent out there? Raise your hand if you heard of Lent. Okay, good. You're all tracking with me. It's really nothing more of saying, hey, what if we take time to center ourselves in the, the, the journey that Jesus takes toward the cross? As we anticipate not only his death on the cross, but his resurrection. So, we hold this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in the story of Jesus in the journey to the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, this passage read for us this morning, if I could give you a sense of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark, I would tell you that from the very beginning, Mark's Gospel begins with an announcement, that a declaration that the kingdom of God has come near, and then Jesus says, if that's true, I want you to come and follow me, and he, and he calls disciples to follow. And they say, we're in. We'll follow. And they begin to follow Jesus along the way. Really, it's an invitation for those disciples and an invitation for any disciple, for any of us to follow the call of Jesus to come and discover what this kingdom is like. What kind of Messiah is this if the Messiah has come? Who is he? And what is he about? What is this kingdom about? And so they, they follow Jesus eagerly. They drop their nets. They leave their father. They leave everything behind and they follow Jesus. They seem so willing. And Jesus all along the way is, is teaching them what it is that the kingdom of God has come. Who he is as God's anointed Messiah to inaugurate the reign of God, the kingdom of God. He's teaching them and he's showing them by what he does and who he is, what the kingdom of God is like. And there are points along the way in the gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus as Mark tells it, where Jesus stops and it says, he told them very plainly what the kingdom of God is about and who he is as God's Messiah. And in every instance in the gospel of Mark, they fail the test in every single instance. He says, I want you to see what this is about and who I am and who God is and the beauty of what God is doing. And they say, okay, and they totally miss it. Story at the middle of the Gospel of Mark that demonstrates this, that really represents this, is the story about the healing of a blind man in Bethsaida, in the place called Bethsaida. And Jesus touches him and he says to the guy, well, do you see anything? Which is a strange question, isn't it? If Jesus is the healer. And he says, well, I kind of see, but I, everything's still a little fuzzy. And Jesus touches him again and he can see clearly. It's an illustration. It's an illustration of the journey that the disciples are taking with Jesus. They kind of see, but they can't really see. And here's the thing. Here's what I want you to hear. What they miss, what they miss is that at the very heart of this way, of this kingdom, of this thing that God is doing, is one who is willing to lay down his life for the sake of the world. To empty himself. Uh, to pour himself out. To surrender his own life and will. So that there might be life in abundance. And they can't get it. They don't see it. They want the kingdom of God to be about something different. The way of Jesus, hear this, is the way of the cross. The shape of the kingdom is cruciform. 
It takes the shape. It takes the image of the cross. And it's not only the way for Jesus, but it's the way that Jesus invites us to take with him. The way of the cross, the shape of the life of Jesus' followers is cruciform. I want you to hear that word. It's kind of a cool word, I like to say it. Cruciform, right? So here's an image of a cross. You saw it on the screen moments ago, if you could put that back up there. And I want us to stop for just a second, and I want to give you a few moments to just reflect on this image, and perhaps even to close your eyes if you like in just these few moments, and maybe there's an image of the cross that's special to you that you'd like to reflect upon. But just center yourself. Let's center ourselves in this moment on the image of the cross, the way of Jesus, this kind of cruciformity. Take just a few moments. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to get very, very simple. This shape, this image, has two dimensions, at least two dimensions, right? Um, You don't have a cross without this vertical dimension, right? You'll see it reflected in the image or any any image of the cross that you've ever seen. Uh, There is this center post, the center piece of the cross that's vertical, Um, And there's a second dimension. It's kind of obvious. This dimension is not vertical, but it's horizontal. These two images form the shape of a cross, and they're so connected to each other that you don't have a cross without both, right? If I were to say, I'm going to show you the image of a cross minus this um, vertical dimension... You just have a beam laying on the ground, right? It's not a cross, really, is it, Art? Art's a builder. He knows this stuff. It takes both dimensions. I would suggest to you that this vertical dimension, this this dimension that goes up and down, uh, is symbolic of something. At least I want you to think about it this way this morning. That it's symbolic of this Upward, inward, and upward journey. This reaching up, this life with God, right? And that this horizontal dimension that stretches out in this direction, right? From side to side is symbolic of this outward journey, um, this move toward the world for the sake of the world. So you've got both dimensions, right? Inward and outward, that make up the the shape, the image of the cross. And I would suggest to you the shape of the life of cruciformity, inward and outward. And both have to be in relationship to each other. In fact, um, another way to think about this is that the inward life and the outward life are held together much like you and I breathe, inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly and outwardly. Subconsciously, you're going to start doing this with me, right? Inwardly and outwardly. You know what happens if you don't hold those two in balance? 
If I could do a little illustration this morning, if I could take the time, I, I would. I would say, I would, I would call, I've done this in, in uh, lectures before. I would call a student up here to the front with me, and I would say, I want you to help me with this. I would like for you to take in a deep, uh, a deep breath, and I want you to exhale completely. Exhale completely. And then I would say, hold that. And then I want you to just inhale just a little. And then hold it. And then inhale a little bit more. Hold it. And just a, just a little more. Hold it. You know what happens if you do that for long enough? Go home and try it. Because I don't want to be responsible in church. When you pass out. When all of a sudden... Things start to twinkle, and then it goes black, right? You can't sustain life that way. If you only inhale a little, and then exhale, 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 hold it, and then inhale just a little bit, and you repeat that cycle, you will pass out. Am I right? There's a certain rhythm that God has built into our bodies, that says if there's not some balance between inhaling and exhaling, the inward, the inward life with God and the outward life with God for the sake of the world, that your body will shut itself down. It will shut you down. And it's the same. It's that way. This life of cruciformity takes that same rhythm. Jesus' life in his journey to the cross is sustained by a balance between both. He is clearly, as he's called and led by the Spirit into the world in the power of the Spirit to offer his life for the sake of the world, he is healing, he is touching, he is eating with, he is embracing, he is crying with. His outward ministry is for the sake of the world. But that cannot be sustained without the inner life that Jesus embraces. His life with God. So he takes time to live in the rhythm of both. And that's true in the journey that's told to us in the Gospels of Jesus' um, way to the cross. Mark 15 says... That Jesus went to a place called Golgotha, and there at Golgotha, he was crucified. Mark chapter 15. Look, the way of the outward way of giving his life for the sake of the world, the way of the cross, is in full view at Golgotha in Mark 15. Yes? But before he ever gets to Golgotha in Mark 15. Guess where he is in Mark 14? He's in Gethsemane. You don't get to Golgotha without going through Gethsemane, the place of prayer. This is where Jesus finds himself in the verses that were read for us this morning. In this place of prayer, the garden where he prays, the way of the cross goes through the place of prayer. And it's in this place that Jesus, I want you to hear, wrestles with God. 
He wrestles with God. He wrestles with the call to give his life fully and completely away for the sake of the world. He says these words in Mark 14. He says, if it's possible, let this hour pass from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. That's his prayer. That's his prayer. In your Bible, in Mark 14, what Jesus prays next seems almost to make it this, this prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane all run together. But I want to suggest that we sit with that part, this part of Jesus' prayer for a moment, marked by these two phrases. Let the hour pass. Take this cup. It's a prayer of petition. And as nice as we want to make Gethsemane sound, you know, the rather sweet notions we have, of prayer gardens, of the Garden of Gethsemane, a peaceful place of respite and retreat and renewal. These two phrases are agonizing. Let this cup pass. Take this from me. Let the hour pass. Through the long watch of the night, Jesus is waiting for heaven to come down and take it away. These words aren't semantic, like he's just going through the motions. Well, I guess I should ask God to maybe, if it's okay, can we consider another route here? That's not what's going on. From the deepest seat of his being, he's pleading for God. To intervene. The petition is for God's intervention. And maybe the reason we need to sit with that for a minute this morning and not rush past it so quickly is because a lot of us know what it is to sit in the long, dark watch of the night and petition for God to take it away. If there's any other way... God, let this cup pass. I don't know if we use those words, but you've said in those moments where through suffering and uncertainty and pain and heartbreak and fill in the blank, you long for nothing more than the sovereign God who reigns over all things to come down and intervene, to sit in the moment of petition Through the long, dark watch, let the hour pass. Take the cup. And maybe there's some time between that prayer, the prayer of petition for God to intervene, and the part of the prayer that comes next. Because what Jesus says next is, You know, not what I will, but what you will. 
not what I will, but what you will. It's surrender to the will of God. And sometimes I think we are left to believe that the petition for heaven to come down and take the suffering away is immediately, is supposed to be immediately followed by the surrender to the will of God. But maybe it takes some time. Maybe you have to sit in the space in Gethsemane in the space of petition for a while and in the agony of the moment of what's in front of you for a while so that God might work gracefully and steadily and lovingly to lead us to the place where we can pray the prayer of surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. The prayer that Jesus prays on the way to the cross moves in this way from petition to surrender. From petition to surrender. From take this from me to your will be done. You see that in the prayer? On the whole, the life of prayer that we embrace moves this way from petition to surrender. And what I've noticed is we're pretty good about petition. It's harder to move to the place of surrender. We can think all day long of the list of things to put in the prayer of petition. It's harder to move to the place of complete surrender. It's not easy. For Christians past, this move from petition to surrender became a mark of Christian spirituality and the nurture of Christian spirituality. They held up Mary as the mother of Jesus, as the model of this, because it was to Mary that the angel came with this announcement that she would bear the Son of God into the world And let me just say, that had consequences for Mary. She says, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. She says, "Um, excuse me, what? It had consequences for her. And when you read the story of the angels coming to visit Mary and delivering this news, her response is, let it be to me according to your will. It's the prayer of surrender. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's the space in between when something's been cultivated in Mary so that she can pray the prayer of surrender. Let it be to me according to your will. Whatever it might mean, I surrender to the will of God. I surrender all to the will of God. Ignatius of Loyola was a Spanish priest and theologian. He founded, some of you may or may not know of Ignatius, anybody Ignatius of Loyola? Heard of, maybe heard of Ignatius? Maybe this. He founded uh, the spiritual order uh, uh, that is, uh, was called the Society of Jesus. I kind of like that name. 
the society of Jesus. I'm going to be a part of a society. I want to go with the society of Jesus. That was the order that Ignatius founded and more commonly known as the Jesuits. Now you've heard of Jesuits, right? Um, What Ignatius was about, Ignatian spirituality is about, is an attempt to encounter God in all things in the world. In other words, that our whole posture as followers of Jesus is to embrace the presence, the life of God in every moment. It is to live a prayerful life in that sense, right? And a hallmark of Ignatian spirituality is what is called the prayer of indifference. The prayer of indifference. Now, when I say that to people, they often look confused, and they say, wait, shouldn't we? Indifference seems to mean apathy. We should care about things, right? We should be passionate about things. What do you mean to be indifferent? We are not indifferent. We are believers. But that's not what Ignatius meant. That's not what Ignatian spirituality means by that. Rather, it's not dispassion, but it's to hold life in a way so that all things are surrendered to God. I'm indifferent to my own will. I'm indifferent to the world in pursuit of the will of God. That's the prayer of indifference. It is Mary's prayer. When she surrenders her will to the will of God, it's the prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane in the garden. Ruth Haley Barton uh, puts it this way. You'll see this quote on the screen, and I'll share it with you. Uh, This is not the indifference we associate with apathy. Rather, it is the prayer that we would be indifferent to everything but the will of God. You hear that? It's not apathy. But it's the prayer that we would be indifferent to everything but the will of God. Um, This is from uh, her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Um, And specifically, she's talking about the practice of discernment. How do you discern the will and the way of God? And she says, the prayer of indifference is central, has always been central to that practice. This is not the indifference we associate with apathy. Rather, it's the prayer that we would be indifferent to everything but the will of God. Next slide. Indifference in the discernment process means that I am indifferent to matters of ego, of prestige, of organizational politics, of personal advantage, of personal comfort or favor, or even my own pet project. I'm indifferent to those things. Next slide. As Danny Morris and Charles Olson put it, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's, that's a good one to put on the refrigerator. If you, if you have things on your refrigerator where you, you know, when you get food, you see things. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. What needs to die in me in order for the will of God to come forth in and among us? That's the prayer of indifference. That may be the last slide. I'm not sure. Is there more? Blank screen. No. That's the prayer of indifference, right? You get the the gist of it. On the whole, the life of prayer moves in this way. From petition 
to surrender indifference to anything and everything but the will of God. Do you understand how that lowers my anxiety? It lowers my anxiety. I can hold life loosely. I can hold myself more graciously because I trust. I trust that the greater the surrender, the more the will of God comes into view. So here we are, back with the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then, thy kingdom come. Petition. Kingdom come. Petition. Followed by, your will be done. Surrender. You see? Your kingdom come. Petition. We long for your reign. Open the heavens and come down. Petition. Thy will be done. Surrender. For all our desire to go in the way of Jesus, to take up the cross of Jesus, to embrace the mission of God for the sake of the world, exhale, exhale, everyone, exhale. We breathe in deeply. To pray the prayer of indifference, to move from petition to surrender. Maybe, just maybe, I suspect that there are many of us that are stuck in the space between petition and surrender. It's an easy place to get bogged down, the space between petition and surrender. If nothing else, the journey to the way of the cross that Jesus is inviting those first disciples to take with him, even though they can't see it, they're having such a hard time with it, is a space that we occupy too, and perhaps even this morning, the space that you occupy, kind of stuck between petition and surrender. I can't remember in the moment if this was Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or another um, writer who said that most of us hear the call to follow Jesus, to go in the way of God, and we walk right up to the brink, right up to the precipice, our toes dangling over the edge, which I often do on this little stage. And the next step takes us all the way over. And we just can't seem to take the step all the way over. We're stuck between petition and surrender. The call in this moment is to surrender. And really, it's the prayer we pray in every waking moment. Maybe that's why Jesus placed this phrase right at the beginning of the prayer that he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done, surrender. It's the prayer in every waking moment. And when you rise in the morning and when you move about your day, you are playing out that part of the prayer. In every word you choose, in every decision you make, in every encounter that you have, surrender. 
I will give my life away for the sake of the world, beginning with that which is right in front of me. Surrender. We get stuck right in that space. We want to pull back and think that the sum total of our faith and our prayer is just to ask God to do things. When Jesus invites us all the way through to the point of surrender. I don't know what that means for you this morning in this moment. But as this sermon comes to a close and as our worship moves us toward the table of God, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to think about that space of surrender. If I were pulling a fast one on Ricky this morning, I would tell him the song that comes to mind for me. I'm not going to do this to you, Ricky, unless I'm doing it to you. You interpret that as you will. We can sing the song you picked or... But I remember we used to sing the song, um, I surrender all. I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all, all. Maybe for you individually, maybe for us collectively as God's family in this place, it is to say we're leaning into the call to surrender all. And for you, it might mean that in boldness that you come before the people of God and you say, I'm going to surrender all. I, I've been stuck in this place and I need to give it all away. And whatever that means, if that means that you walk into the waters of baptism and you relinquish your life to be buried with Jesus and, and to rise to a new life, then that's the surrender. Or maybe for you, it's to come it's just to confess, I'm stuck in this place and I cry out to God, but I feel stuck in this place and I just want to surrender all. And just to pray over that, right? Or maybe it's just in the place where you sit or stand as we sing together and as we move toward a table where we're remembering the gift of Jesus in surrender of all things that in your heart, you're moving across that threshold that God is pulling us. God is drawing us by God's Spirit across that threshold to surrender, to surrender it all. Whatever it is, this is the moment. This is the prayer we pray. Not my will, but your will be done. I surrender all. Let's stand together and sing.